Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. You know, right now it's hard to see. Could rates fall that much? Our home price is going to fall. That's going to be, you know, hard to see. And and can we really realistically kickstart a lot more building? You know, I, I think Zillow's latest data says we're still short something like 4.3 million homes, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, given the demand. And uh, it just feels like since the financial crisis, we've never been able to close that gap. And uh, gosh, it's hard to see it closing anytime soon. I'm Mary Long, and that's Motley Fool Senior Analyst Matt Argersinger. Deidre Willard caught up with Matt and Fool Analyst Anthony Chavone to look back on the year that was in the world of real estate. They discuss our changing relationship with work and its impact on the future of cities, why more Americans are locked into their current homes, plus when and where you just might want to follow the asset managers. Let's start with 2023. What is your biggest headline for the year, Matt? Well, 2023 for me, and I, I hate to you know start this wonderful show on maybe a dire note, but I think 2023 to me really put the nail in the coffin for traditional office real estate. I, entering the year, I feel I felt like there was you know we were we were sort of beyond the the worst of the pandemic. Companies, corporations, you know, business was getting back to normal. And we were kind of embracing maybe a more hybrid work uh, work schedule, and I just thought that that was going to bring back, you know, a little bit of more traditional office, bring back the demand, bring back the activity, the the office visits, the occupancy, and boy, it didn't. And I think for a certain segment, particularly of, of office class B office, I, I, I think the nail is in the coffin. I think that particular part of the office market is 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 really dead. And unfortunately, I think even though newer Class A office is going to is going to find demand and have as a, a you know a slightly better future, I, I I also worry that it's also not really an investable asset class going forward. I just think we've had such a secular shift in the way uh, the worker relationship with the office. In fact, I don't even think we should call it uh, office anymore, guys. I was actually thinking we should almost call office like collaboration centers. You know, people where people come <laughs> on an infrequent basis. To just collaborate, you know, to have meetings, to you know, collaborate on specific projects or tasks, and it's not necessarily a a regular thing anymore. Um, maybe that's too far extreme on one side, but I, I do think that for me is what I'm always going to remember 2023 first and foremost. All right, so that's off to a gloomy start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, it's it's all about housing affordability. Since 2020, by some estimates, median home prices are up around 30%, which is just incredible growth in such a short, period, a short amount of time for something like housing. And then, you know, to make matters worse, the Fed embarked on one of the fastest interest rate hiking cycles that, that we've seen in quite, a, quite some time. Um, and that drove mortgage rates to nearly 8% just a few months ago. So the result is a dramatically higher monthly mortgage payment 
for 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 most people buying buying a new home. And according to the National Association of Realtors, housing affordability is at its lowest point in nearly forty years. And so, since housing is you know the biggest asset that a lot of people own, I think it's a it's a really big deal. And hopefully, this gets resolved. You know, looking forward in twenty twenty four and beyond. Also, not that <laughs> we have some some gloomy things here. The first thing that comes to my mind is, man, I wish that we could find a way to put the housing into the offices. But as we both have, we've all discussed before, that is not not really possible. We can't turn all of that Class B office space into into housing. So, I mean, people are trying, but that is certainly no. Yeah, yeah I'm glad I'm glad you brought that point up, Deidre, because it's 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 way too expensive. First of all, and if, even if it was economically feasible for you know this this tr- transformation to take place where we can take a lot of this you know uh, unused office stock and turn it into other uses it it's not practical in certain cases because of the way the buildings are structured and we've we've talked a lot about that in the past so i unfortunately i think um you know not to not to beat this drum on on office but it almost i almost think to the point where the only solution to a lot of these uh, class b offices especially you know in the near term it's foreclosure but in the long term i think it's it's demolition I think we almost have to clear out a lot of this stock before we can get to a point where we can redevelop the space. Well, yeah, and that's one of the things that that I wanted to talk about too was this has been the sort of like slow burn crisis of the loan issues facing commercial real estate. I mean, you framed it up with, you know, obviously the demand for office is lower, you know, when you're trying to refinance now as as Ant pointed out, you've got those higher interest rates. So, you know, you, it, there's about a Billion dollars in, I'm not, sorry, a trillion dollars in loans coming due in 2024, 2025, which just seems like a like a like a snowball rolling at us. So, on a scale of one to ten, with one being we're doomed and ten is it's it's this is a blip. It's not going to work out that bad. Uh, Matt, where do you put the risk? That's a good question. I, I think the risk to the overall market, like if I think about what's the risk to the economy and financial markets, I, I'm 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 at a four to ten. You know, I, I think commercial real estate. Even even this this tremendous wave of loans coming due that you mentioned, Deidre, a lot of these loans will get worked out. They'll be they'll be extended. They'll be rolled over. Some will be refinanced at higher rates, even though that seems a very like a very difficult, expensive thing to do right now. But the risk to commercial real estate itself, and of course, when I say commercial real estate in this context, we really are talking about office because that's where the trouble is. Yeah, I'm at an, yeah. I'm at an eight out of, eight out of ten. I think, you know, the impact that it's going to have on a lot of banks. Especially regional, smaller banks who have a lot of office loans on their books, you know, they're going to be owning a lot of office real estate in the next, you know, year or two, and they really don't want their banks aren't in the business of owning and managing office real estate. So it's going to be really, really tough, and I think you're going to have to have a lot of workout firms come in and and, and work things out. But I, I don't. I, it's going to be much more contained. This is not a 2008 style crisis where, you know, what we saw then was the collapse of the housing market. And all these these loans that that went bad caused just tremendous ripple effects across the economy and financial markets. That's I don't think so. I think this is going to be more of a slow burn for the market, but specifically for the commercial real estate, you know, segment itself, it's going to be very very difficult. And are there any sectors that outside of office that you're looking at uh, as a as potential risk for next year? Yeah, so I think office is definitely the big one, and, and Matt explained that very well. Um, I would probably say malls, and then also, kind of surprisingly, multifamily. Mm. We'll start off with malls because I feel like malls is kind of a similar story to office, but the the story's more it's further along. You know, really over the past decade, malls have struggled with uh, the rise in e-commerce sales. 
So I think high quality malls will be fine, uh, but a lot of your class B, class C, lower quality malls, um, they're going to have trouble refinancing their debt when it, when it eventually comes due. And then looking at multifamily, multifamily still has pretty strong, uh, yet moderate, moderating op- operating fundamentals. Occupancy is still pretty strong. Rent growth is, is slowing um, and, and negative in some markets. But I, I think the thing that worries me about multifamily a bit is that a lot of loans were originated in 2020, 2021, um, 2022. And over the next couple of years, that debt is eventually going to have to be refinanced at a, a dramatically higher interest rate. So I, I do think we could see some pockets of distress in multifamily over the next couple of years. But like Matt said, I think it's it's going to be relatively contained and it won't be widespread. And also, too, you have a ton of um, private equity capital that's going out there and, and, and looking to take on loans that maybe regional banks won't want to take on. So there's still a lot of um, capital flowing into real estate, uh, maybe not the, the, the speed it was in, in 2021. So I think it's largely you know, going to be contained. Yeah, I like the point you made about about multifamily because the part that worries me is that high end luxury because you're sort of in a in, if you're trying to pencil out a deal, you kind of want to have the most you want you want to be in a position where you can charge the most rent. So all the money flowed toward luxury multifamily, but you know rents are rents are sort of stable stabilizing or stalling out in some markets, and in some of those markets, there's there's a risk of oversupply. And the risk that some of those apartments might be too small, based on the fact that now everybody works from home. So there's, I think, I think you brought up a really good point. That is an area that that worries me as well. Well, let's talk a little bit about about REITs. And uh, you just mentioned the idea that we've got, uh, we've still got capital flowing in, but it, it was not a great a great year for REITs. They do perform outperform the broader market over time. Matt has drilled that into my head. But this, it was not their year. Matt, is is 2024 going to be their year? Well, I, I sure hope so, Deidre. I think it will be. I mean, you mentioned 2023 not being, you know, a great year for REITs. Well, it's been a brutal two years for REITs. You really got to go back to the, you know, beginning of 2022, really when the Fed, you know, started its its rate hiking cycle, and REITs have just gone in the opposite direction, uh, for you know, for two years now. And yes, historical data is on our side. REITs should outperform coming out of this. And I think part of the problem that REITs have faced is because a lot of institutional investors treat REITs like bond proxies, right? And for the first time, if you ask the, you know, the average institutional investor, for the first time in two decades, I can get a, uh, or at least 15 years, I can get a risk-free yield of 5% or more, right? And we haven't seen that in a long time. And so, if you're comparing that to a REIT that might also be paying 5%, uh, you know, a five percent dividend yield, it's just not as compelling because there's risks associated with that investment, right? If I can get risk-free five percent, why am I going to do risky five percent? Uh, but of course, I think as most things, investors are a lot of investors are missing the bigger story here, which is with a REIT, you know, you have an you have real assets, you have rent-producing assets, you have assets that can grow, assets that oftentimes are resistant to inflation, leases that rise with inflation. And so I think there's there's a lot of growth that can be had with REITs as well. In addition to, especially today, really nice dividend yields. So, and you'll you'll read a lot of reports, and Ant has found some great data out there that suggests you know a lot of REITs, even if you strip out office, which we know is really facing a lot of trouble, REITs are trading at or below their net asset value. And anytime you see that in a broad way, uh, REITs are probably set up to have um, you know to rebound pretty strongly. And I think that's what we're going to see starting in 2024. Are there any particular areas of REITs that that you're more interested in? Because like one of them that I'm thinking about is the idea of 
rebounding in data centers, and there aren't that many of them left in the in the in the publicly traded read space. But you know, with you see the AI growth, and you have to figure that there's a correlation there. They, you know, uh, the two biggies, uh, digital realty and Equinix, they are performing better than they were. But what sectors are you looking at? Yeah, I mean, I'll let Ant answer this as well because um, yeah, data centers are one, and I think you know, Iron Mountain is another one that uh, Anthony and I talk right, a lot about yeah. that uh, is a is a, an emerging player in the data center space. That's that's pretty exciting to us. You know, I think industrial is going to stay strong. We talked a lot about industrial estate. You know, when I talk about industrial, I mean you know warehouses, logistics facilities, your your, your prologists of the world, your stag industrials, where uh, they're really riding these two undeniably strong secular trends, right? E-commerce, which we've known about for decades now, but also this more recent trend of, you know, kind of supply chain optimization or redundancy. You know, since the pandemic, we saw all the challenges that a lot of companies ran into in 2020, 2021. And they're looking to bring, you know, some of that manufacturing home, uh, trying to, you know, increase their inventory levels. And that just means a lot of demand for industrial space. We just don't have enough uh, industrial space in this country. So, that is one area of you know the REIT market that I think is going to stay has been strong and it's going to stay strong, and I'm sure Ant can name one or two more as well. Yeah, I, I know I just got done saying that we might see some distress in multifamily, but I do think some of the multifamily REITs present an opportunity because a lot of them, like for example, Mid America Apartment Communities, is one that has a super strong balance sheet, um, a management team that's been with the company for for decades. I, I, I mean, they're not going to run into the same refinancing issues that maybe a, a private owner might run into because uh, they have access to liquidity, low cost of capital. Um, so I think they'll be able to weather a downturn. And you know, if distress does occur, they'll be able to be on the aggressive and maybe acquire some properties at, at attractive valuations. So that's a sector that I'm, I'm still looking at, even though there might be some distress um, in the coming years. Well, I like Mid America too because they're focused more, uh, like like the name kind of says, not not at the high end of the market and really in the Sun Belt area where we've seen so much of the growth over the past couple of years. Uh, kind of related to that, that we've I feel like we talk about the Sun Belt all the time. Is is the growth story still there? Do you think is that still where things where we should be looking for opportunities? Is is in those markets that have been expanding rapidly? And what do you guys think about the sort of gloom stories that we've seen about San Francisco and about New York. Well, I'll start with the I'll start with the latter, the uh, the doom loops uh, scenarios uh, that uh, worry about. You know, there's there's two. I'm I'm of two minds on this. Of course, I don't think cities like New York City, San Francisco, Chicago are you know are going to face some kind of cycle doom cycle where where things just get worse and worse over time. Uh, you know, because offices are declining, people are leaving the city. I do think at the same time, though, we have to we have to sort of broaden our idea of what cities mean, uh, major cities mean for you know for the country and for how we live our lives, right? Because for the longest time, for decades, really almost the entire 20th century and well into the 21st century, cities were kind of the central hub of where work and commerce happened. You know, we millions and tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people, kind of you know were commuting into these central. Uh, offices, right, to to do work, collaborate with employees, and, and get things done. That, on a, at least at the white collar level, has been completely changed in just the past few years. And if that is the case, I mean, just think about what that means for, you know, adjacent real estate, you know, retail real estate, restaurants downtown, uh, entertainment downtown, uh, public transportation. 
all of which is seeing less and less demand because there's just less people moving downtown on a daily basis. And so I, I, I think that I think cities have a future uh, and I certainly don't think, you know, we're going to just see an you know, endless down cycle for cities. But I do worry a lot about, you know, what the current environment, what the work relationship and change means for cities. And uh, I just think it's too early to say. And if we aren't able to do this tremendous transformation of all that unused office space downtown, right? I mean, New York City, think about just the, you know, the millions and millions of square feet of office space in Manhattan that's probably not being used right now or very underutilized. What happens to all that? I mean, the, the, the expense of trying to transform that, if we can't or aren't able to, what does that mean for you know, a city like New York's tax revenues? What does it mean for you know, occupancy over the long term? What does it mean for you know, the economies, the central economies of those cities? It's just so many uh, you know, unanswered questions right now. So it's not, a, it's not, an, you know, it's not a written story here. There's a, there's a lot more to think about. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. Yeah, I think that's true. And one of the things I think about with that, too, is with the Sunbelt cities that are growing and you have this opportunity to do the, the urban planning side of it better which hasn't quite played out as much as I'd like. But uh, but also with, with big cities, you have a chance, there is a chance to sort of reimagine what a city is. And that's the thing that makes me optimistic. I mean, yes, there are worries about, you know, about funding pu- public transportation and things like that. But there is also the opportunity to think of like, how can we, how can we do things better? How can we make, how can we make changes that are, that are great, like the idea of the 15-minute city or the sort of like super block neighborhoods where you get everything you need in, in one location. So that's that's the part of all of that uh, that, that, makes me, that makes me feel optimistic. Before we move on and talk about residential, and I wanted to turn it to you because one of my sort of like weird investing theses is sort of like follow the asset managers, like follow a Blackstone or a KKR. And I'm wondering what the opportunities are on the private equity side and what we can learn from what private equity is doing right now. All right. So, if we look at public REIT REITs over the last four years, we mentioned how they outperform in the long term, but they've been very volatile over the last four years. Uh, 2020 hit the pandemic. Uh, they were one of the worst performing asset classes. 2021, they were one of the best performing asset classes. And then 2022 and 2023, with higher interest rates, um, they've been one of, again, the worst performing asset class. So, I think that does present an opportunity for the institutional side, the private equity side of real estate to um, maybe take some market share because the way that private real estate, the way they measure their returns, it's, it's, it's backwards looking, it's appraisal based. So, they're not marked to marketing, they're marked to market their prices every single day. Um, it's not like a, a liquid stock like, like a REIT is. So, that is that tends to lead to less volatility over the long run. And so if you're a portfolio manager for a pension fund and you're looking to invest money, you're probably going to like that lower volatility because overall, like you don't have to worry about the, the daily fluctuations in stock prices. So I think that does present an opportunity for institutional capital to continue taking share. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just add 
to that. That's great, Ann. I mean, we we've you and I kind of have followed uh, you know the the Brookfields of the world, the Blackstones of the world, and these firms, uh, you know, it seems like they can just go through bad periods, but they they never have issues raising capital. <laughs> it just seems that you know they can always launch a new fund and you know raise billions of dollars and you know no matter what's happening in the market whatever cycle is and they can they can be counter cyclical where oftentimes REITs uh, or even publicly traded real estate companies can't be because they're beholden to you know earnings they they have a balance sheet and there's not much they can't react fast enough often they can't recycle capital in the same way a, a private equity firm can or raise new capital and so I, I do think, and, and we earlier in the show we talked about, well, gosh, there's all these loans coming due, foreclosures, banks, you know, are, are really struggling. Well, private credit is is going to fill a lot of that of that vacuum, right? They're going to come in, pick up a lot of those loans, pick up a lot of those distressed properties, and that and really take advantage. And so you're going to see, I think, you know, a, a Blackstone, Brookfield, uh, maybe even Starwood, be able to really capitalize on the current environment. It might it might be dicey in the short term, but the 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 money they're raising now and the and the money they're going to be investing in the short term could really really pay off uh, in the years ahead. Well, and I think another factor that I've seen, especially on the real estate crowdfunding side too, is uh, raising money for for um, not for equity but for like mezzanine loans and things like that because Prefer, there and is preferred debt, preferred equity. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Because it's been such a challenge for certain projects to get funded. Is that now there's this other thing and and I feel like this is a temporary this this is a window of opportunity based on interest rates and things like that. But that's where I'm seeing another area where where some money has definitely been funneled. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you're, you're seeing that a lot. I think that's a great point. You know, whether or not as an individual investor you'd be you know, better doing that versus just investing, say, in the equity of, of uh, in the stocks of private equity firms or REITs today. I don't know because you know, as we know, a lot of those those crowdfunding sites, you know, investing in single asset deals, you know, a single market, and even though a preferred equity rate of say twelve percent might sound great, uh, you have to ask yourself, could I do better, especially? On a risk-adjusted basis, by sticking with the public markets today, I, I would probably say yes to that to that answer. That definitely seems to be how it has worked out. Let's uh, let's pivot and talk a little bit about residential. And kind of kicked us off at the beginning of the show talking about that. So, yeah, existing homes uh, not did not sell very much in 2023. Uh, uh, you know, around down around 20 percent. Next year, you know, I've I've seen the reports from Redfin and Zillow. Everybody's doing their forecast right about now. They're saying that prices may go down a little bit, sales may go up a little bit. It seems like it's still on pause. What do you think? Are we going to shake out of the pause? Yeah. So I I think eventually, I think everything will sort itself out. In the near term, I think there's kind of three scenarios that can improve the the housing affordability situation. It's either mortgage rates fall, home prices fall. Which will lead to lower monthly mortgage payments, um, or we could build more housing, which I think in the long term is is probably the best solution. We just had so much demand for for new housing. You think about a large millennial cohort that's moving into their their prime home buying years. Um, you have work from home, which is increasing demand for for more space um, in, in in general. And then you also you have underbuilding since the Great Financial Crisis, so supply is low. 
you've had a lot of government stimulus over the past couple of years. You had strong wage growth and, and full unemployment. So there's a lot of demand drivers chasing limited supply. So I, you know, the more we can build, I, I think in the long run, it, it's going to be better. I mean, look at multifamily rents is a great example of this. And the Sunbelt in 2021, 2022, you saw double digit rent growth. And now there's a massive wave, wave of supply coming into the Sunbelt. And now you're seeing rent growth tick down to 1%, 0%. In some cases, you're having negative rent growth because there's more supply coming online. So if we could do that with the, the residential market, um, single family houses, I, I think that in the long run is a, a great way to fix this situation. Yeah, you, teacher, you asked us at the beginning, you know, what's what's our what's our kind of headline for 2023? I went with office, but my second headline, if I was going to go with it, was just the phenomenon of this lock-in effect that we've seen in the existing yeah. home market, where I don't think we've ever seen anything like this in history. I, I guess you could go back to maybe the, from the 60s to the 70s when we had a period where you know home buyers were able to buy in and at very and lock in very low rates, and then we had a period of, of just rapidly rising rates. But I don't think there's anything like this because of just how acute rates have, have risen, you know, uh, since the early 2022. And so you have a situation where we've talked about this, where something like two thirds of homeowners currently have a fixed mortgage rate under five percent. I think it's even if you go under four percent, it's still like sixty percent. And so obviously, there's a huge reluctance on the part of existing homeowners to list their house, even if they wanted to, or even if they wanted to buy a bigger house or move to a different, you know, location. They're just not willing to give up their three percent, you know, mortgage rate that they have locked in for the next twenty plus years, right? So, it's a, it's a it's an amazing phenomenon. I, you know, I don't think certainly the 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 agencies and the home market you know, lenders were not ready for this situation that we find ourselves in. It's 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 almost like a deep freeze. And I think yeah, the forces that Ann brought up, those three forces, would certainly change the market. But you know, right now it's hard to see. Could rates fall that much? Our home price is going to fall. That's going to be you know hard to see. And and can we really realistically kickstart a lot more building? You know, I, I think Zillow's latest data says we're still short something like four point three million homes. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, given the demand, and uh, it just feels like since the financial crisis, we've never been able to close that gap. And uh, gosh, it's hard to see it closing anytime soon. Yeah, and it's not just the the lock-in effect. It's also those who've paid off their mortgage is a huge part of this. So mm -hmm. almost around like forty percent of of homes don't have a mortgage right now, and about over half of those people are uh, in retirement age. So right. maybe maybe they move at some point. But I think the other factor, uh, not to be really grim, but the other factor here that's going to shake this out eventually is is the aging of America and the, the demographics that, that shift, that eventually people will have to leave their homes. And people want to age in place, but that that's not always possible. Right. And that'll certainly, that, that's gotta, it's certainly got to happen at some point. How, you know, how fast can it happen? And will it happen soon enough to, to resolve this you know, incredible supply-demand gap that we, we're seeing right now in the market? It, probably not, but it'll happen. Well, and that supply and demand gap has been good news for for home builders. You and I have talked before about the fact that you know at at one point about a third of the houses on the market were were new homes, which just like never happens. That's usually around ten percent. And so you've got this this situation that should be good for home builders, but as 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 we mentioned, they're not really building. So you know they may that they're building, but they're not building as maybe as exuberantly as as they could because they're still kind of cautious. But what's your thesis for home builders right now? 
my thesis is a, is a simple one. I think it's for everything we've talked about, which is it's just a they're pretty much the only game in town, <laughs> really, because like we said, the, the existing market, the existing home market is frozen. And so what you have is a situation where home builders can come in, build new homes, offer, you know, offer financing to new home buyers, uh, oftentimes uh, at rates that are, are, are a lot down payment terms and rates that are a lot better than what, you know, you can traditionally get from a from a lender. And so, uh, you know, if, if, if no existing homes are for sale, and all you have are you know new homes being built by home builders. They are in a position where they can charge whatever they want, and but at the same time, you know, they're, while their margins are great, they're they're interested in protecting those margins, and they don't want to overbuild in a situation where there's less demand or uncertain demand. And so, like you said, it's it's a it's a it's a perfect environment for them, but they're also being very cautious. And so, uh, for if this is the status quo for the next. Year or so, home builders are going to do great because they're going to pick their spots. They're going to, you know, they're getting, they're going to work through their backlog. They're going to earn incredible margins, the highest margins they've ever earned on on home building. But they've got other forces they have to worry about. They've got, you know, uncertain demand, uncertain economy. They've got higher costs, labor costs, and input costs, and they're just going to manage those as carefully as possible. So, to answer the larger question, home building isn't isn't a solution to the housing crisis that we face in this country, the affordable housing crisis. But as an industry, uh, they are certainly in a great position right now. And if you're an investor in home builders, you've you've seen the results of that over the past eighteen months. It's been a, it's been a great place to be invested. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Mary Long. Thanks for listening, whether this is your first time with us or you're a seasoned fool. Our team is taking a break these next few days to enjoy the end of the year. We'll be back next Friday, December 29th for a 2024 preview show. See you then, fools. From all of us at Motley Fool Money, we wish you and your loved ones a very happy holiday season a wonderful end to 2023, and of course, a foolishly fruitful new year.